A common question in the dark cafes, speakeasies, and back alleys where product managers congregate is, what are some good product management books? And you can find a few lists of recommended books out there. I'll link to a few of them in the show notes. But in this episode, I'm going to present a somewhat iconoclastic list of books that I've found extremely valuable and which don't often appear on those other lists. Although most of these books specifically apply to creating products, especially products that are highly successful and that their users or customers love, they aren't as well known even though they should be. Partly this is because most of them don't specifically say they are product management books. This is Nels Davis, and you're listening to All the Responsibility, None of the Authority, Episode 324. In this podcast, we answer the questions I and others have about the realities of product management, product marketing, go-to-market, and innovation. I've been doing it for 25 years, and I've learned a few things, and I'd love to share them. If you have a question about product management, check out my episodes. I might have answered it, and if I didn't, let me know, and I'll do an episode about your question. My goal is for this podcast to give you the best mental models, tools, techniques, and secrets for creating value in the world and delivering solutions to problems that need solving. I'm hoping these insights and approaches will up your game, accelerate your career, and help you get more value to market faster. You know, books can be dangerous. The best one should be labeled, this could change your life. And my goal with the things that I recommend is that they are resources that can change your life or at least change the way that you might think about product management or whatever it is that you do. And I feel that the books I'm going to share are all in that category. So the first one is the book called Badass, Making Users Awesome. It's by a a wonderful thinker about how to make products and a very successful product maker herself, Kathy Sierra. And the reason this is such an important book and actually going along with it, there's a, a video that I recommend every product manager look at that she gave at the 2014, I think it was, Business of Software Conference, a talk she gave, I think is just the best way of thinking about product management, which is essentially that products are not the things that we want to build as product managers or as technologists. They're the things that are make enable our customers to do the things that they want to do. What makes a product successful is if it enables our customer to do the thing that they want to do, whether that's take better photographs or manage projects better or manage their back office better, whatever it might be. Of course, a lot of these are software products that I talk about. She has a great story about how she created the Head First series, which were originally designed to help people help train people on how to do Java programming. There's a whole range of them. They remain one of the best-selling series of books on Amazon on the, in the technology space. She basically reverse-engineered what it was that her users needed to become great at writing Java programs which was what their goal was. It wasn't the types of things that you necessarily think of if you're a technologist and you say, well, how should I teach people to write Java? It was more based on what people actually need. There's a great story that she has in that video, and I recommend it. And the book Badass has a lot of really great ideas that she has about how to make your product something that makes the customer awesome. It's not about the product being awesome, it's about the customer being awesome, and that's what that book is about. Just one of the best books you can read about product management. I highly recommend it, and it's the thing I recommend to everybody first, uh, along with the video. that There will be a link to her video 
in the show notes as well. So a link to the page with the book recommendations and also a link to the video. That's for Kathy Sierra, Badass, fantastic book. Totally recommend that. The next book that I recommend is called Jumpstart Your Business Brain. It's by a guy named Doug Hall. He is an innovation consultant and he makes his money by having dozens of people from Fortune 500 companies come out to his farm and spend a week or two coming up with ideas for new products that then become highly profitable and successful. Much of this work that he does is secret, but his techniques are not, or well, some of them are. A lot of them are in this book, though. It's a fantastic book. Again, the reason that I recommend it, first of all, it's not well known in the product management world. I don't even remember how I happened to hear about him, but he's, I guess, relatively well known in the innovation guru world, but not well known in the product management world. And one of the most fundamental things that he talks about in this book, and I've talked about it a lot on my blog and in other cases, is what he calls the three laws of marketing physics. And he says that in order to have a successful product, the product has to essentially have three things. It has to have what he calls an overt benefit. Now that shouldn't be too surprising. It has to do something valuable for people. And it has to be overt though. You have to be able to articulate what that benefit is. The second thing it has to have is it has to have a dramatic difference It has to be different in some way than other products that it might be competing with so that people have a reason to choose it rather than the competitors. And it has to have a real reason to believe. In other words, you have to have some way of making your prospects feel that it will actually do the thing that you are promising that it does. And this might be testimonials, whatever it might be. There's obviously things you can think about that, that go from those obvious three marketing principles. But he says that he has really strong data to back up these ideas. He says that, for example, if you have a product that only is strong in one of these areas, it has an overt benefit, but not a dramatic difference and not a real reason to believe, then its chances of being successful are much lower than if it has like all three or even two out of the three versus one. It's very interesting to, to read this book. And he talks about all kinds of different examples of how you can use this idea of everything from marketing restaurants to marketing plumbing products to marketing high-tech products and things like that. Anyway, it's a great book. has a lot of other really good stuff about how to become more innovative as well. But I think that the real value for product managers is this three laws of marketing physics and sort of how to drill down on that. But anyway, I highly recommend it. It's a very enjoyable read. He's a fun guy. I've seen him present. He uh, basically, he, he always wears Hawaiian. He only wears Hawaiian shirts. He presents barefoot when he comes up on stage and he's pretty fun. And I just remembered how I first learned about him. He had a really great show and a podcast that was on, it was on NPR and it was also published as a podcast where he would take questions from people who had small businesses about how to make their businesses more successful. And he would essentially answer those questions on this podcast. It was fairly fascinating. The kinds of ideas that he had and the ways that he went about thinking about innovation and marketing and creating product success. Anyway, I highly recommend the book, Jumpstart Your Business Brain. The next book is called Decisive. It's by Chip and Dan Heath, or who I call the Heath Brothers. I don't know if they go by that. They've written a number of very useful books for thinking about how to do, essentially helping people change their minds or switch. They have a book called Switch, which is how to make people help people change their minds. Decisive is really good, and it's particularly focused on how to make better decisions. Better decisions is something that we have to do all the time as product managers. Obviously, as product managers, we make lots and lots of decisions. And the better that we can be at making those decisions, the more likely our products are to be successful. They have come up with a lot of research-based 
guidance on how to make better decisions. One of the easiest to use is if you have an either or decision, essentially where you have two options, you can always find other options. You never are really constrained to just two options. This is really true in the product world and almost all decision situations, you're, you're not constrained to two options. Sometimes it takes a lot of work or intelligence, creativity to find other options, but actually in the product world, at least in my experience, there's, there's almost always other options. Sometimes it's a, the option is to not make the decision today, for example. It's to put off the decision or to get more information, whatever it might be. There often may be other options that you can think outside the box. That's really one of the reasons thinking outside the box is so important, is it gets you out of that A or B mindset into thinking about D and E and X and Y and Z. There are a number of other really great decision-making tools in this book as well. So I highly recommend that. Uh, book Decisive. Any book by them is going to be really fun to read. It's going to give you some really good insights. Decisive is probably the most directly applicable to product management. So that's why I recommend it. Have it on my book. But any book by them is going to be great. I have another book here showing a, a, this fantastic book called Flash Foresight, which is about how to think, essentially, think of the next thing over, leap over the your current thinking and think about something in the future. It's very inspiring. I have found it unfortunately not that easy to apply in in a day-to-day -day basis on uh, for product management even though I highly recommend the book because it's just so interesting and the ways of thinking will probably help get you out of your ruts but I can't exactly give you a story of how you apply it in day-to-day -day thinking but it's a, it's a great book I just highly highly recommend it Flash Foresight it's by a guy named Daniel Burris who's what is called a futurist and I remember I first saw Daniel Burris, and I didn't recognize, I didn't make the connection until much later. I saw him at a talk where he was giving a keynote. It was a, it was a presentation that was sponsored by Merrill Lynch or somebody like that. And he was giving the keynote, and he made this great statement, and it always stuck with me because I made the opposite conclusion, and later on I realized how wrong I was. But he said, if you're not planning for compute power and storage and networking capacity to all be infinite, then you're not planning correctly for the future. And I thought, well, that can't be right because, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember the Dick Tracy comics and they've been going for many, many years when I was even, even so when I was a kid, but they were still running. And one of the things that Dick Tracy always had was this two-way wristwatch radio with video. So he could, they didn't call it video in those days, but he could see he could talk to people using this little screen on his wristwatch. Now, this was invented in the 20s in the comics. Obviously, when I first heard Daniel Burris, I said, that is obviously not going to ever be possible. There's never going to be enough bandwidth. Even if, even if Daniel Burris is like directionally true, right, that we should think about bandwidth as being infinite, it, we're never going to be able to put pictures on our wrists. And, of course, what do we have now? Well, we have this thing which, of course, I can watch movies walking around with. It's too big for my wrist. Apple, of course, now has an Apple Watch which on which I could watch movies if I wanted. It turns out that the wrist is a bad form factor for watching movies, but it is now possible. So one of the reasons that I really like Daniel Burris is that he broke my brain. I had this very firm belief that something that he said was possible was not possible, and then not that long after that, it turned out to be possible. So it makes me always remember the assumptions that I make, even though I was very sophisticated, and I still am very sophisticated about things like Moore's Law and whatnot, 
that I was just wrong. As a product manager, it's very valuable to recognize that you might be wrong. That actually goes to another book that I don't have on my recommended list, but it's called The Invisible Gorilla. I'll put a link to it uh, in the show. I'm, I'll probably put it on my list of recommended books. It was the first book where I learned about the Dunning-Kruger effect and other types of cognitive biases where we think we, we may think we know more than we do or we make decisions in, in wrong ways. And of course, there's also Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, another great book that talks about our cognitive biases. As product managers, we may actually be one of the smartest people in the room, but that also means even though we are that, and often our developers are smarter than we are, don't, don't anybody be fooled, but we're among the smartest people in the room, but that still means that we probably don't know everything and that we're likely to be wrong, and we always have to be checking on ourselves to make sure that the assumptions that we make and the decisions that we make might be wrong and what do we do if, if they are and how do we validate that our intuitions and assumptions are correct. Something I find I have to do all the time as a product manager is just continually have that checkup loop to make sure that what I'm thinking is actually correct. That is Daniel Burris and it led into a whole bunch of interesting other topics but the point is that uh, there's a lot of things that we have to be, take into account as product managers about cognitive biases and about how to make better decisions and things like that and about how to think about not the future thing, but the post-future thing. The Lean Startup, you're probably familiar with that, and it is kind of a product management book. The most important concept in the Lean Startup is not, well, it probably the most important concept is what's called the minimum viable product in the book, but most people un misunderstand what the minimum viable product really is, which is essentially a test. The minimum viable product is the minimum amount of work you have to do to validate a hypothesis that you might have about your market or about the people using your product or the usage of your product. That may mean as something as simple as a web page. Like if you're thinking about creating a new product, sometimes the simplest and easiest way to validate that there's interest in your product is to create a, a simple web page, drive some traffic to it, and see if people sign up. There's no reason to build anything more than that until you've validated that there's that demand. And that is actually one of the examples in the in the lean startup of a minimal, minimum viable product. Unfortunately, a lot of product managers, I think, have misinterpreted this concept of minimum viable product. And they've said, well, you have to, it has to be a product, it has to be something people can buy. And the fact is, it's not. Or you can say that another way, which is that I want to validate that people will give me attention. That's a way of buying something. And you don't have to do much work to validate that people will give you attention. There's other kinds of hypotheses you have where you do have to build stuff where you can't just find out from a web page. But the point is, it's the simplest thing you could do to get the answer that you are to the question that you're asking. And that's what a minimum viable product is. And he talks about that in the Lean Startup. There's a lot of other interesting concepts like the pivot. But I think the most valuable thing from the standpoint of product management on a day-to-day -day basis is what is the minimum amount I can do to validate that this is a good idea before I invest a lot in it. And it actually goes to a lot of other things that I've talked about over the years in the podcast and on videos and various things like things like investment options. You give somebody the option to invest a little now and for a big return later, and what you're going to use that initial investment for is improving the odds of that eventual payoff happening. But you need some investment initially to do that initial testing, and that initial testing is often something that's very similar to an MVP. It's a small test. It's a way of reducing some risk. It's a way of answering a hypothesis. And so investment options and lean startup tie together really well. 
Now, in fact, the guy that, that I originally heard about investment options from, uh, David Bianetti, I'll put a link to his stuff in the show notes as well. He originally came up with this innovation options and started to, to talk about it a lot in the context of Lean Startup. He worked with Eric Ries. The Lean Startup by Eric Ries, you're already familiar with it. I have three other books that I also want to recommend, and there's a lot of books that, uh, that I could recommend, and I, I've already added a couple more. Three of them that I think are really valuable. One of these, it's very likely you've heard of. Two, you might, may have heard of. The first is Drive. This is a book about the science of motivation, what motivates people. And I think Drive is most interesting from, this is by a guy named Dan Pink, who's written, an, a, again, a lot of really useful science-based books about how people behave, how to make better decisions, how... He has a really good book on how to sell better. But Drive is about motivation. And I think motivation is really interesting from the standpoint of a product manager because one of the things that we have to do as product managers is convince people to do things. In other words, to motivate them. And another word you, word you could use there is influence, to influence people. And Drive is a great book for understanding a lot of stuff about influence and motivation one of the key takeaways that I have from from the book Drive is that motivation consists of three really important things for people that do knowledge type work, like we do, like our development team does, like our sales team do. All, all of the folks around us in high tech, particularly, are knowledge type workers. There's three big important components for them of motivation. You can think of them with the acronym MAP, Mastery, Autonomy, and Purpose. So mastery is, are they good at what they do and are they continually getting better? And are they able to apply the things that they know and are experts in to solving the problem or to, to achieving the goal? That's one component of, of motivation. It's much more motivating for people who have expertise to be able to make use of their expertise. Autonomy is, are they able to use their knowledge to come up with solutions as opposed to being given a solution or an approach that they have to follow. And so you can think about this as one of the things we like to do as product managers, or one of the things we should do, is not give our development team a solution to build. We should give them a problem to solve. This is often much more motivating for them because then they get to use their autonomy and their mastery to create a good solution. And it's probably a better solution than we might be able to give them anyway. They are better at solving problems than you are. You're good at finding problems. That's what should be your primary job as a product manager and articulating those problems. And then it also ties into the third component of motivation, which is purpose. Why should I solve this problem? And one of your goals as a product manager is to be able to articulate why this problem is worth solving. And it's gonna have multiple different components. It's gonna be a problem that's really important to some people in the market, which means that they will be willing to pay for it, which means that your company will be able to make a profit. If, they build, if the company builds a solution or if your team builds a solution that the company can then sell. So that's how purpose fits in to the whole product management world. Now, I think what's very interesting about mastery, autonomy, and purpose is it also ties in really well with what I call the secret product manager framework, which is that what we do as product managers is we find market problems, we drive the creation of solutions, and a lot of that is about motivating people to build good solutions. So that ties into this motivation thing. And then we take those solutions to market. And that's about motivating and influencing prospects to decide to buy our solution versus the competitors. So it all ties together. The next book that I want to talk about and highly recommend is called The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper. And it sounds 
like uh, th this could be any number of books based on that title. But what it really is is about how high-tech products, many of them, are not good. The reason that many of them are not good if you boil it down is because they are built by technologists using their own ideas about what makes good. It's another way of approaching the idea that Kathy Sierra writes about in Badass, which is to essentially say the way to make great products is to put yourself in your user's shoes or your customer's shoes, figure out what they want to do, and figure out what their problem is, and then build a solution to that problem as opposed to the solution to the problem that the technologist thinks there is. And so the inmates are running the asylum. Very interesting approach. It's a little different from the lean startup approach. It's a little different from the badass approach. And he, he uses a, a term called interaction design, finding, discovering users' problems and then designing solutions to those problems that then get built and become successful products. He has a very good track record in doing this, Alan Cooper. It's a fun book to read. It's a great screed for part of it about how terrible technology products are as a rule. And it also gives a lot of good guidance on how to solve that problem. One of the, my favorite concepts from that book, and I've talked about it in various articles as well, is what he calls personal goals. A lot of the problem with the products that we often build is that they don't address the user's personal goals. Oftentimes they do address the business goals that the user or the customer might have, but they don't address other goals like the personal goals. And a good example, the example I always use is if I am a, a user of some software or a, a doer of some business process, right? Whether or not I'm using software, I may be able to, to complete the process. I may be, able to, may be able to achieve the business goal of the process, but it may be at the cost of, for example, being extremely bored. It might be a really tedious process, or it might be at the cost of maybe making errors and then looking like an idiot when my errors show up. The personal goals there would be the inverse of those. I'm not bored when I do this process. I can do it quickly. I can do it with no errors. And those are often things that we don't think about explicitly when we're building products. And I, another one I always like to use is, this is a, the example of a personal goal being achieved. By using your product, I'm able to leave on time to get to my kid's baseball game. That's a personal goal achieved. If the alternative is a product that either makes me spend late hours at work or where I don't even have a solution to that, that is an example of personal goals not being achieved. And there's a lot of other examples. I have a bunch of them. I'll put some links into some of my personal goal examples or articles uh, into the show notes. So then finally, a book you've probably heard about called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. He, again, has written many books about uh, essentially product development, product marketing. They're really product management books. In fact, Crossing the Chasm in some ways was like the seminal product management book. There was another one that came before it that was based on, uh, I think that was by, I don't, don't remember the author, but it was called Managing High-Tech Products that was that preceded this. And actually a lot of the thinking in that drove what Jeffrey Moore was thinking about in Crossing the Chasm. But I think there's a couple of really important ideas in Crossing the Chasm that we often forget about. We think about that chasm where, you know, the product adoption lifecycle and the chasm that, that it has between early adopters and and the mainstream market. Some other really important concepts that don't get as much attention are things like what he called the bowling alley strategy. What you want to do is you want to look for a segment of the market that has the problem that you solve so intensely that they're willing to spend anything to get a solution. So if you can create a solution for those people, they will buy it right away. They'll spend a lot of money on it. 
They'll give you a huge, huge amount of valuable feedback. And instead of trying to sell your solution to everybody who might have the problem at any different level, the bowling alley strategy is find the people that have the prob problem most critically, address them, focus all your marketing and sales on them. And then when you've saturated that market and gotten all their money, you look for another market that's adjacent and they have the problem not quite as bad or they're a little harder to reach or something like that, but they're adjacent. And the idea is the, men the mental picture is it's you're, you're going after a set of bowling pins. You go at the head pin is the segment of the market that has the problem the worst. The next pins are adjacent to those and maybe can be you can get into those markets if you've already captured the head pin market. So really great concept. And it helps us remember that to be most successful selling, we have to sell to the people that have the problem. And to be even more successful than that, we have to have the sell to the people that have the problem the worst. It's a great way to accelerate our sales. So that's one of the great concepts. The other really good concept I love from Crossing the Chasm is the idea of the whole product. It's not just the technology that you're selling that the customer buys, but it's a lot of other stuff. It's the service. It's the support. It's the knowledge that you embed or the, the field services that you provide. And it's really good to think about the whole product, not just the technology, as the solution that the customer is buying. It helps you think about some things that I often talk about, like how you put knowledge into your product or into your offering. And it's one of the things that makes the difference often in a competitive situation is how much knowledge are you putting in? How much richer is your whole product versus your competitor's whole product? And it's something to think about. One final book, I want to talk about How to Measure Anything by Douglas W. Hubbard. It kind of changed my mind about how measurement works in some valuable ways, and I think it provides some fantastic ideas. It was recommended to me by one of my friends on one of the product management Slack channels. So Hubbard starts out with the premise that, indeed, you can measure anything. If it's going to help you make a better business decision, you can measure it. Even things that don't look very measurable. But he does use a specific definition of measurement that's a little different from our intuitive idea of a specific answer, probably numeric. And I have to say, this kind of blew my mind. I have often talked about how I don't trust metrics for various reasons, but a lot of my concerns were addressed by the way Hubbard approaches doing measurements. The key idea, well, there's a ton of ideas in this book, but the one that was most important for me to hear is essentially the following. Every decision or measurement is uncertain. Some measurements have lower uncertainty than others. Those are the ones that end up with a particular number. And maybe they look like they don't have much of an error component. But the fact is that all measurements have error bars. And you have some measurements that have very large error bars where you really don't have high certainty in the, out, in the value. And those are often also the ones that are most likely to make a big impact on the business. And despite this high level of uncertainty, and often the high cost to make the measurement, they are still useful and critical for making big decisions. And this uncertainty is manageable if you pay attention to the error bars, to the level of uncertainty, and how you should interpret that. And he has many, and he has a lot of guidance on how to do this in the book. And in this set of very uncertain measurements, of course, are many that product managers need or want to do. For example, let's say I'm making a new feature, and I think this new feature will enable us to beat our competitors in certain kinds of deals. The thing I really want to know is how much is it worth for us to create this feature? We know roughly how much it will cost, but we need to have a sense of whether the incremental revenue we get for it 
will offset the cost and give us a good ROI. There might be multiple reasons to commit to a feature besides its ROI or its incremental revenue, but let's start there. Now, one of the great tools that Hubbard talks about is Fermi estimates. I did a whole podcast episode on these recently, but I'll give a quick example here. We can use a Fermi estimate to get a value, a highly uncertain value, of the incremental value of this new feature. Obviously, we think we'll win some number of new deals, and obviously, I can't give an exact number for multiple reasons. It's about the future. To get the exact answer, I'd have to predict the future, and there's lots of other uncertainties. So I'll estimate, and to keep it simple, I can think of the metric I'm looking for as roughly the number of deals we'll be in versus this competitor times the percentage of deals where this feature will enable us to win the deal. So I don't know these exact numbers either, but I do have a good idea of how many of those deals we've had in the past in both of the categories. And since I don't think that competitor is going away in our market and our market is growing, I can make a prediction that we'll have at least as many deals with those characteristics next year as we did this year. And I will assert that because of our new feature, we're going to win 50% more of those deals than we currently do. I'm not certain about any of these numbers, but there's sort of a reason to believe each of them or I can make an argument. And for each, I can assess my own estimate and I can have other people grill me on my estimates. But if I use those estimates, I can get a sense of how much incremental value am I going to get from these new deals that I won against this competitor and how does that compare to the cost of building this feature. So using those educated guesses, I can come up with a good rough estimate of the potential number of new deals we'll win that we might have lost previously, and thereby create an estimate of the incremental value that this feature might enable us to get, at least for this scenario. Now, I've just done a Fermi approximation. Now, Hubbard would say that in some cases, a Fermi estimate is not actually a measurement because it's really a prediction. It's not based on new observations. But I think it's a really valuable tool, and it's actually one of the tools that we've probably have to use the most as product managers. Now, if I take care, which is using the techniques that Hubbard shares in his book, I can know, even know how confident I should be in this estimate. I can test my level of uncertainty and the calibration of my uncertainty levels, that is, my confidence in the estimate, in several ways. I'll give you one technique from the book, and I recommend you check out the book for more. He offers several methods for calibrating your uncertainty. Some are too complex to really present in this episode. But one simple technique is simply to introspect about the potential problems your estimates might have. Assume your estimate is wrong and then explain to yourself why it was wrong. And this is actually similar to one of Chip and Dan Heath's recommendations for testing your decision making in the book Decisive, which I mentioned earlier, in the technique they call the pre-mortem. Basically, before committing to a decision, you run a mental scenario or even a group exercise where you assume you made the decision and it turned out badly. And the pre-mortem is an analysis on what went wrong. And this can often help surface problems with the initial decision that are hard to find in other ways. This works both for measurements as well as decisions. So I found Hubbard's book to be amazing. I highly recommend it. It's a large tome, so you'll have to work your way through it. It will be worth it. I've gone in depth on eight books, and I mentioned four others in passing. The books are Badass by Kathy Sierra, Jumpstart Your Business Brain by Doug Hall, Decisive by Chip and Dan Heath, Flash Foresight by Daniel Burris, the Invisible Gorilla by Christopher Chevris and Daniel Simons. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. I mentioned Innovation Options, which is a concept from David Bianetti, not actually a book, but I'll put a link to a podcast interview with him and also his website. I mentioned Drive by Dan Pink. The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper. Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, 
I, I mentioned a book that I called Marketing High-Tech Products. It's actually called Marketing High-Technology by William Davido, and then How to Measure Anything by Douglas W. Hubbard. So these are all great books you'll find extremely valuable, and some of them I'm sure will change and improve your thinking about product and product management. In the show notes, you'll find links to all of these books and also links to various of my other articles and podcasts about some of the topics I mentioned, like personal goals and the three laws of marketing physics. That's all at all the responsibility slash 324. A few more closing notes. I have a new cheat sheet on the website you might find valuable. It's a framework and template for capturing the information for great customer success stories about how your solution addressed a big important problem they had and how that resulted in their business and personal life being a lot better. To access it, you can go to the show notes at alltheresponsibility.com slash 324 where there's a link or simply go to alltheresponsibility.com slash stories. If you have questions you'd like me to answer on this podcast, I'd love to hear them. Feel free to leave a comment in the show notes or drop me an email at nils at nilsdavis.com. This has been episode 324 of All the Responsibility, None of the Authority. And until the next episode, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye. Fire. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition.